For the rest of us, if you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 20 through 27. And as you turn there, let me just uh, take a moment to give a quick update on uh, Richard Smith. Um, some of you maybe are a little disappointed as I step up into the pulpit. You were expecting Richard to be here and to, to share about the mission of uh, RUF International up at uh, Penn State. And uh, uh, as, as Russ had prayed, uh, Richard's uh, daughter uh, tested positive for uh, COVID early in the week, and she has uh, had some, it's been reasonably rough, had some uh, good fever and a lot of coughing. And he did tell me that she is uh, getting a little bit better. Um, he has to be in isolation uh, because she does live with them. And so uh, he's unable to, to get out and do anything. And uh, so we made the call that uh, you just have to put up with me one more Sunday. So my, my apologies. But let's continue to pray for Richard and his ministry there. Obviously, this hampers uh, his work as he doesn't want to be an instrument of spreading uh, COVID throughout the, the campus. So uh, Daniel chapter 9, we'll start reading in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction one is de that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let's pray. Our Father, this is one of those passages that are not uh, plain at, at first glimpse from, from so many aspects. What are the, the 70 weeks? What, what is this uh, abomination of desolation, as Matthew would later talk about? And Father, we look at the, the incredibly dark news, and yet in the midst of it is the promise of the Messiah. Fathers, we look to you. We ask that you would give us an understanding of your word. We pray that you would instruct us and that you would guide us and that you would change us. Help us to know how we might trust in you, Messiah. We want to pray for our children, Lord, as they are in Sunday school and, and for the adult class as well, but particularly for our, our children whom you have given to us and whom you have placed in this church. We pray that the message of the gospel will pierce their hearts. We pray that your Holy Spirit will breathe life into each of these little ones and that they will trust in you with all of their heart. And Father, for us, we give ourselves willingly to you and choose to follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Daniel is a book that was written during a, a time of discipline in Judah's life. Uh, Judah had been deported into Babylon and then later uh, under the Medo-Persian uh, empire, and they were uh, deported because of sin. God was disciplining them. He had told them that if they were walking in rebellion, this is what would happen, that they would be taken out of the land, the land that uh, God called his own, the land that had the uh, temple, the land where the people had, had uh, worshipped for so many generations. 
And they had been deported, and, and they're facing this discipline. And in the midst of this discipline, Daniel is written, and Daniel reminds the people at that time, but also reminds us, that even when we're separate from our home, which we are right now, and let's, let's understand the significance, we, as the people of God, God, are not in our homeland, which is to be with God. We have been deported, if you will, from Eden. We were kicked out. Why? Because of sin. And we live in this world, which is not our own. But while we live in this world, which is not our own, God invites us, in fact, guides us to build His kingdom, even though we're living in man's kingdom, even though we're living in this foreign land. Um, in chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, that we just read a, a, a moment ago, we got a, a vision of some very dark times, right? And if we look at the, the, the weeks, and we understand them as most people do, that they're, they're actually week is not a week of days, but a week of years. So we're looking at 70 weeks of, of, of years and this extended period of time. And if you look at it, almost all of it is just dark times, and difficulty and hardships that the people are going to be facing. And this is, this is the vision that comes before us. And if, and if we think about what, what is the effect of that? I mean, we, we look at it and, and we see that we're kind of on the other side of most of that. And, and uh, the, the times maybe it isn't as, as dark. But put yourself in Daniel's shoes and try to understand how difficult this would be. That I'm supposed to build God's kingdom while living in man's. And by the way, it's going to be a long time and it's going to be pretty bad. It can get really discouraging. We find it even in our efforts here as we seek to, to see the gospel spread forth. And we see in our nation, instead of the gospel going forth and, and more and more people coming to faith and, and the light beginning to take over and, and, and transform the culture, we see it the other way around. We see culture continuing to be darker and to be harder. And we see hearts moving away from God. And we see the church not only marginalized, but the church is now viewed as in some ways the enemy of a good, healthy society. And it can get discouraging, can't it? And as, as, as Daniel would look at this, this vision and would look to the future and say, oh, gyal, because I know he used gyal. I think it's a Hebrew word, right? But, but as, he's, as he's looking, he can be really discouraged and it'd be easy to give up, isn't it? It's easy to quit. We can find ourselves instead, I just want to survive. Right? That's my primary goal. It's kind of like some people like to, to run together. They, they'll go jogging together and, and they'll jog and they'll talk and stuff. And people have asked me in the time, hey, would you like to go do that? And it's like, no. When I'm running, I have only one concern and that's actually breathing because that just isn't working so well. And, and, and I just can't do I want to survive. Right? And sometimes that's what we want. And so we just, we just live to survive. And sometimes we live, we just want some level of relief. Is there some break? Is there some moment in which the darkness will, will fade for just a little while? And when we're facing the, the temptation to just survive or find relief, we aren't working to build God's kingdom. We get distracted. The message is about trusting Messiah. And I want to think for a moment, what helps you to trust another person? On what basis do you trust people? Some people we trust just because they're, they're in our life and maybe we trust them because a friend has spoken well of them. But for the most part, when we begin to choose to trust someone, there's a reason for that. And usually it, it revolves around some level of a track record, right? Has this person shown themselves to be faithful over an extended period of time? Someone who's been faithful is someone I'm going to trust, right? But not only faithful, I also want someone who's competent, Right? I can have a faithful mechanic, but if he's no good at fixing my car, I'm not going to trust him to fix my car, right? He's always there, but he always does it wrong. So I'm not going to trust that individual in that situation. So I need them to be faithful, and I need them to be competent. And one other thing is I need them to, in some way or another, care about me, right? I think about this almost every time I get on an airplane, right? I'm hoping that the, the folks who are maintaining that airplane are faithful, right? <laughs> I'm also hoping that they're competent. But third, I actually hope that they're caring about the people that this airplane is going to carry. And that they're saying, I'm actually here trying to be sure lives are safe. That's the individual that I want to trust. I want us to, to think now, it's, 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 as we go through a book of the Bible... 
Sometimes it's, it's, it's easy to lose the forest for the trees that we're studying and we look at the, the individual little uh, details of the chapter we're looking at. We forget that there's a larger story. And I want us to remember the larger story of Daniel, particularly when we think about track records, because we're looking at Daniel, looking at this dark time, and as he's seeing it in the future, he's remembering what he has lived. He's remembering the events that he's already recorded down. And he remembers, first of all, in chapter 1, how he came and he said, I don't want to compromise to God, and so I don't want to eat the king's food. And God intervened and caused him to be healthy, even though he was only eating vegetables, and caused him to find favor and raised him up to leadership within the nation, right? He's remembering not just the the, the food that God provided. He's remembering the dream that God allowed him to know. That no one even knew what the dream was except the king. And God revealed it to Daniel and he was able to tell it to the king. And he was able to bring relief. He remembered the fiery furnace and the faithfulness of his friends. And how God was faithful as well. Who rescued them from the fiery furnace. I'm sure that he remembered with incredible warmth the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. That God had actually intervened in that man's life, that ruler of the world at that time, and it brought him to salvation. He remembered the writing on the wall, the wicked ruler, that God came and with his own hand wrote the warning that he had been um, judged and found wanting. And that God that very night brought a change to his leadership he remembered the night he spent with the lions and that God had faithfully shut the lions mouths and as he looks to the future and he sees this dark vision of these hard times which are going to be over an extended period of time he remembers that God is faithful and the Messiah can be trusted and as it's written down for us it's an invitation to us to trust Messiah to trust Him, not just in a, 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 a one moment, oh, I trusted Messiah, now I move on with life, but in a day-to-day, moment-to-moment, in the warp and woof of our life, that we trust Messiah. How do we do that? I think we do that by, first of all, trusting Him in prayer. Trusting Him in prayer. <coughs> trusting Him in prayer is not a matter of just convincing myself that He's going to do what I want Him to do, Right? It's not so much that, that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for that new job and it's like, oh God, I believe you're going to give me that new job, right? That's not what it means to trust Him in prayer. That I somehow am going to, by my will and by my determination, by the strength of my faith, I'm going to force God to have to do that which I want Him to do. That's not what it means to trust God in prayer. To trust God in prayer is a resolute conviction that He is good. No matter what he does, and as I bring my concerns to him, whatever my concern may be, whatever my desire may be, I bring it with a heart that is seeking him to act according to that which is good. Remember the definition that I've used for prayer at at different times. That prayer is communicating with God in order to gain his heart. Think about that for a moment. Communicating with God in order to to gain his heart. Now that can look like, oh, so I'm going to communicate with God so I can bully him into giving me what I want? Well, surely you can't bully God Almighty, right? That's that's not what it's about. But aren't there those times when it seems that an individual has brought a concern to God and God has said, okay, right? I think of the Syrophoenician woman who came and said, Lord, Jesus, would you heal my daughter? And he says, it's not appropriate to give the children's bread to the dogs. And she's not insulted by that. But instead she turns around and says, but Lord, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And the Lord says, I give you what you've requested. Right? What did she do? She communicated with God to gain His heart. And she did. Sometimes though, it's a matter of communicating with God to gain His heart in a different way that I'm communicating with him and I'm beginning to learn what his heart is. And I'm I'm sorry about the, the, uh, uh, I don't even know what those are called now, 
Luke 22:42 we see in Jesus Jesus himself being God and yet he turns to the Father and he prays Father if it is possible let this cup be taken from me right He's praying to gain the Father's heart. He wants the Father, would you take this cup from me? If it's in any way possible, would you do this? But how does he resolve it? How does he show that he wants God's heart? He says, yet not my will, but yours be done. So that I may gain God's heart may mean that his heart changes my desires. That I begin to desire what God wants. And that transformation that takes place inside me. This is what it means to trust God in prayer. I believe there are three expressions of trust in, in Daniel's words in verses 20 through 23. Let's, let's look at these, three, these four verses again. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of the people of Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. The first thing that we see the expression of faith is, I believe that that he shows his faith, his trust in Messiah by confessing his sins. First, we trust Messiah by confessing our sins. To confess, he says in uh, verse 20, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, the word confess is the Hebrew word yada. Which, which comes from the, the word hand. And it has the idea of to throw something. To throw it out. The picture is that he has his sin, he recognizes his sin, and he takes it and he throws it at the feet of God Almighty. He throws it at the feet of Messiah. He puts it out and he throws it out toward God. Here it is. Oh God, here is my sin. This is the reality of what I have done. And in throwing it out, it lets it be known, doesn't it? It acknowledges, there it is. It is right between the two of us. We can both see it. We both know it. We both know it equally well. There is my sin. It is before you. There's also an element of renunciation that as he throws it out, he wants it away from him. But with it, there's a fear in throwing out our sin like that, isn't there? We can become nervous about that. Especially, am I going to throw out my sin before the holy God who cannot look upon sin? Am I going to throw it out before a holy God who is just in all of His ways, knowing that the wages of sin is death? Am I going to throw it out to that God? How can I do that? I can only do that as I trust Messiah. I can only be honest about my sin as I trust that Messiah is merciful. As I trust that Messiah has given His life to pay the penalty for that sin which I have committed. And so in Daniel casting that out, he's showing that he trusts Messiah. And as we throw it out, we're declaring that we trust Messiah. And yet it's still really hard, isn't it? Because there's a shame associated with it, especially even as Christians. It's like I should just know better, right? I mean, golly, I've been a Christian for how long? I should know better. And it's shameful to recognize what we've done. Um, one of our Sunday school classes recently went through the great divorce and there's an image here that Lewis gives us that I think is really helpful. He says, Don't you remember on earth there were things too hot to touch with your finger but you could drink them all right? Right? We've all experienced that. It's called coffee. But anyway, shame is like that. If you'll accept it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom you will find it very nourishing. But try to do anything else with it, and it scalds. If you, if you just play around with the shame, if you just play around with confession, it just burns. But if you just throw it out there, you find it's actually nourishing. It actually strengthens you and strengthens your faith. So the first way in which we express our, our trust of Messiah in prayer is by confessing our sins. The second is by acknowledging our needs. He then talks about supplications, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication. The supplication, the concerns that he has. I mean, we, we look at, at Daniel, he was 70 years in this foreign land. 
He'd grown up in this foreign land. He was probably taken when he was somewhere between 14 and 16 years old. And he had been a ruler within this land. And he had had his ups and downs within it. He'd seen uh, Babylon go by and the Medo-Persian Empire take over. He had been uh, out of favor and he's brought back into favor. He's gone through all of this. And now he's an older man, probably in his 80s. And it's been hard. And he's praying his supplication. We long for relief just as Daniel did, don't we? I mean, it was hard where he was. He saw that it was going to be hard in the future. He's he's making his supplication to God because he wants some level of relief, and that's okay. And we do want relief. We want relief from COVID. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice if we just finally got some level of relief from this. We, We had our hopes rising, and then they have tumbled back down, and here we are in the midst, and it's raging again around us. And we're hoping, hoping that maybe there's going to be a shift, but we we pray to God for relief. Wouldn't you like some relief from the national strife that we experience? Oh, goodness gracious. It just tears me up every day. I find that the the greatest stress in my life is in all of that that's going on around us and, and the division of of Christians against Christians, and, and uh, let alone when, when you start to, to look beyond that. And it's just, it's just distressing. And I pray for relief from the national strife that is around us. But each of us also has some level of personal suffering too, right? The difficulties that we each face, the different stresses, the different uh, trials, the, the health issues that we begin to face, the loss of relationships, the broken relationships even with our family, the loss of loved ones. These are all things that we come to God and we say we want some relief. And we plead with God for that. And yet in our pleading, and our supplication, as we acknowledge our need, we recognize our real need is for faithfulness of hearts, right? Because all of those pressures invite us to forget about God. They invite us to worry instead of pray, right? They invite us to lash out instead of to love. They invite us to reject God and find some other way of getting relief. But what we really need is faithfulness. As Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 30, or it may not have been Solomon at that point, I think it's the words of Agur. He says in verse 7, Two things I've asked of you, do not refuse me before I die. Isn't that interesting? This individual writing down the Proverbs says, there's two things I want. Two things I'm asking of God. Please, O oh God, do not refuse me before I die. Number one, keep deception and lies far from me. Here's a man who knew his heart, and he says, first and foremost, I don't want to be dishonest. Make me a man of integrity. Make me a man of honesty. Keep deception and lies far from me. That's his number one. That's what he needs, faithfulness. Number two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Boy, that's not a prayer we pray very often, is it? We say, don't give me poverty. I'm there. But riches, I'm okay with, Lord. Despite the warnings that Jesus gives us, right? We 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 don't think Jesus is true and honest with us when he says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. We don't believe him, do we? Agur did. And he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food as my portion, that I may not be, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. What was Agur's goal in his supplication? What did he see that he needed? The two things he wanted from God. Summarized in a single word, he wanted God to make him faithful. That's what we really need in the midst of the difficult times that we face. In the midst of Daniel's praying, I would guess that he was praying, Oh God, keep me faithful. Keep your people faithful despite the dark times that are to come. Trust Messiah in prayer by confessing your sins, by acknowledging your needs, and finally by receiving his favor. I believe that Daniel lingered in prayer. Look at verse 21. While I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness. If we're honest, we don't pray up to the point of extreme weariness very often, right? That's not 
our experience, but it was Daniel's. He had lingered in prayer. And he said it was until the, the time of the evening sacrifices, the evening offerings. I think it's very possible that what this indicates to us is Daniel had been praying all day long. All day long. It wasn't three times a day this day. This day it was all day. He was praying clear up until the evening offerings. And there he was, exhausted. He lingered in prayer. He wasn't just, just giving a prayer and then moving on with life. I wish I had that cool little word that uh, Al used last week, but uh, he had a, a phrase for that, and uh, something along the lines of fire and forget, something like that, to where we just shoot off our prayer and we forget about it, we move on with life, and, and, uh, and that's, that's, that's more how we tend to pray. But in verse 23, he has this word, but let, let's remember, who then talks to Daniel while he's lingered in prayer? Gabriel. Gabriel, we've seen him before, not just in Daniel, right? We see him a few centuries later. Wasn't it Gabriel who announced, I believe it was to uh, Zechariah, that John the Baptist was going to be born, right? And the question is, how will I know? And he says, I am Gabriel who stands before God. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Now don't lose sight of the significance of that. This wasn't the angel Joe <laughs> who just hangs out on the backside of heaven and does the, the, the grunt work that has to be done every now and then, right? God decided to reach out and to send a messenger to Daniel and who does he send? He sends one from his very own presence. And he comes to Daniel with a message. And the message is seen in verse 23. I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Gabriel tells Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Because he's an awesome dude? No. Because he is the elect of Almighty God. Because he is a believer in the Lord. He is highly esteemed. The word highly esteemed means to delight in. It's used in, in Genesis 2.9 that talks about the, the tree was a pleasure to look at. It's, it's used in Psalm 19.10 to talk about the law of the, God, of the Lord. Um, which is uh, more desirable than gold. More desirable, more, more pleasant, more highly esteemed than gold. The word of the Lord is highly esteemed. And then in Psalm 68, verse 16, I thought this was a, a, a beautiful uh, passage. Psalm 68, verse 16. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for His abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The mountain that God has desired for His abode. Mount Zion, which is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. It is what God has desired. The church itself is highly esteemed. You, as the people of God, are highly esteemed. And God sent Gabriel to Daniel that he might write it down to remind you of that reality. As you seek God in prayer, you seek Him in confession, you seek Him in supplication. But wait. Wait. And receive His affirmation of His love. Receive that acknowledgement by God of His favor to you. That's what it means to trust Him in prayer. We also need to trust His work. Verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. He talks about 70 weeks to accomplish six things. Six things that the Messiah is going to accomplish. And he spells these out. And he talks about the six things that are going to be taking place that we can recognize he is going to do. I want us to look at each of these accomplishments of Messiah as the works of Messiah and how we need to 
uh, trust him. Now, I, I wrestled this week. I said, I know I'm only going over eight verses, but man, I really want this to be three sermons. I'm, I'm just worn out of this whole chapter at a time, and I know in a couple of weeks I'm gonna, we're going to go through 45 verses in one week, but um, pray for me. But, but that idea of, of we could take so much time on each one of these blessings, I just want us to touch on them and to think about them. How do I trust God for this? How do I trust Messiah for this? This first is that He will remove transgressions. He says um, to finish transgressions. Finish is to hold back, to restrict, to keep it from coming forward. It's used in a couple different places. It's used in Psalm 40 and verse 11, where he says, You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. He will not withhold. He will not finish. He will not hold back or restrain his compassion. You can't restrain God's compassion, but he's asking that he'll restrain, that he'll remove sin, transgression, our individual sins against God. It's used in Psalm 119, 101 as well. And here we read, I have restrained my feet from every evil that I may keep your word. The idea that we work to remove those transgressions from our life. But the promise is that Messiah will remove those transgressions. That's a part of his work in our life. And there's two ways in which he removes transgressions from our lives. The first way is, is quite frankly, through the Holy Spirit. Have you experienced it? Where the Holy Spirit comes to you and he just convicts you of a sin in your life? And he convicts you, why? To make you feel awful? No. He convicts you that he might take it away from you because it's no good for you. Why do we discipline our children? That we can dominate them and oppress them? Goodness, no. We discipline our children when they begin to put their hand up on the stove. Why? Because putting their hand on the stove is a horrible thing for them to do to themselves, right? And so we want to protect them from doing those things that are self-destructive. And so we teach and we discipline them so they may not make self-destructive choices. God does the exact same thing in our lives. Which is the second way. It's the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit disciplining us. That's how he uh, removes transgression. He will also end sin. Verse 24 goes on. To make an end of sin. That's one of the greatest hopes of what Jesus does for us is that he ends sin. He ends it. It's completed. It's finished. He ends sin's reign. That sin reigns over us, but we read in, in Romans chapter 6 that we are free from sin. That we have died to sin. That He has begun to set us free. He's ended the reign of sin in our lives. He will also end sin's devastation. And I think of this devastation of sin, and I think of a funeral years ago of a, a little foster girl that some friends had taken over at birth, and she had many, many physical defects, uh, um, just all kinds of problems. She would have seizures on a regular basis, and it was non-stop care for her. And it was after about three months that uh, this poor little thing passed away, and the pastor began the sermon of the funeral, and he said, I hate sin. Amen. Amen. But there will be a day in which the devastation of sin will be gone. The way in which sin destroys all that is around us. And one day, sin's existence, its very existence, will be gone. That's one of the things I hope for most about heaven. No more sin. And frankly, it starts here. Uh, years ago, as uh, we suffered a, a miscarriage and was just meditating on, on what that meant for our little, we imagined that she was a daughter, and what it meant for her. And we were sad. And it was Michael who said, so she'll never get a spanking? Yeah. Even an unjust spanking. She'll, she'll be free from her father's sins. She'll never have to face that. Well, isn't she blessed? Yes, she is. One day we'll all be blessed. We will no longer sin. And we know this because we hear the words of Jesus upon the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus received the soured wine, He said, It is finished. 
And the words that he used there are in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means it's a completed action with ongoing effect for all of eternity. It's finished. Sin is finished. Now forever. And we look forward to experiencing the fullness of what that means. He will remove transgressions. He will end sin. He makes atonement. Making atonement means to to turn away the wrath of God. That God's wrath is justly sent out against sin, but all of it was absorbed by Jesus Christ. He took it all and He turns it away that God will not look upon us with wrath, but will look upon us instead with favor so that we can see the, the truth of 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself, is the propitiation, or as I think the NIV has, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He makes atonement. (coughs) He provides righteousness. God entered into a covenant with man in creation. It was a covenant of works. Man's blessings would rest upon his obedience. And if man failed to obey, death would ensue. But it was a covenant that God made, and it's a covenant that was not taken away, even though man broke it. And the Lord Jesus Christ has come, and he has fulfilled that covenant and more. That he has obeyed perfectly. That he provides that very righteousness for us. It says, to bring in everlasting righteousness. The righteousness that we could have brought by obedience to the covenant of works was a temporal part-way righteousness, but Jesus brings in an everlasting righteousness and it is received by faith. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That He took this exchange, He took our sins upon Himself and He gave to us His righteousness. And there we stand before God. And He also fulfills God's Word. He says to seal up vision and prophecy, to seal them up as as secure, to make them absolutely certain that these words of the vision and the prophecy are true and will be accomplished. Hebrews chapter 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, we recognize that He did speak in the prophets. He brought the revelation. In the New Testament, He brings it through the apostles. But there's a better revelation that Messiah brings. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. That's who Jesus is. He fulfills God's word and then He anoints the most holy place. The most holy is literally the holy of holies. I I was surprised to look at the Hebrew there. I was expecting it to be uh, the word ma'od, which is used for much, but it wasn't. Instead, it was the word holy used twice. The holy of holies. That's where God's presence was, right? That's the place in in the temple that was behind the veil that held the ark, and it was the presence of Almighty God. And we think of it in the temple, but the reality is you are the holy of holies. This room is not the sanctuary. You are the sanctuary of Almighty God. That He dwells inside you. And it is Messiah who has anointed you to be that dwelling place of God. He is the one who has done that. Look at all this. Will you trust Messiah in His work? And it begins by acknowledge that you have sinned and you need Him. And ask Him to forgive you. And ask Him to receive you through His righteousness. I invite you to do that this day. For We trust Messiah in prayer. We trust Messiah's works. And finally, we trust His plan. Verses 25 through 27. Um, and actually, I, th- I think we'll read that in just a moment. Um, first, I want us to think about His plan and our plan. Think about your plan. And I don't know if you're someone like me. I, I, I like to set goals. Um, I, I remember before we got married, we wrote in our, our, 
uh, wedding album, you know, life goals. It was like 28, we'd accomplished them. I said, okay, so we need more goals, <laughs> longer goals. We have plans. And, and the goals that we have, um, what, the plans that we have, what, what do they usually involve, right? Success, doesn't it? Yeah, I plan to be successful. And I plan for things to be pretty easy. I, that's my plan, right? Happens all the time. I plan it to be easy to just make a sandwich. I didn't plan to drop the bread, right? I didn't plan for the, 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 the knife to go down into the, the mayonnaise too far and then it's all up over my hand and it ends up all over my elbows. I didn't plan for that. I really didn't plan for that, but that's the way it works out. Yeah, that's exactly right. We plan for it to be easy. We plan for it to be successful. And frankly, we expect God to adopt our plan, don't we? We think he's going to pick up what our plan is. He's the one who, who it's his job, isn't it? To kind of make my plan work? I would never say that, even though I just did, but we would not say that. But it's a reality that that's kind of what we, we think of and what we, we think. When we think about God's everlasting plan, and we think about where Daniel was, and we think about where the Jews were when they received this message of 25 through 27, I'm sure they were expecting Messiah is going to come and everything will be good, right? I mean, that's all we need. Messiah is going to come and it's all good. They didn't expect that Messiah would come and be born in a stable, did they? They didn't expect that Messiah would come and would be raised by sinful parents who would even go so far as to scold him unjustly. And we have that in Scripture when they scolded him for not being with them when he was in the temple, right? I'm sure there were other times that they, they disciplined Jesus. And once they got to heaven, it's like, oh, gee, that was horrible, you know. But, but it's a part of what he had to live through is these sinful parents. The plan that he, the expectation was not that, that he would be rejected by his people. They expected, well, when Messiah comes, all of God's people are going to rally behind him and say, Hosanna in the highest. Not a few days later, crying, crucify, crucify. They did not expect him to be crucified. But after he's crucified, he's raised from the dead. Okay, now we're getting back to the good story, but then he leaves. This was not the plan that the people of God had for the story. But it was the plan of Messiah, was it not? We need to trust his plan, not our plan. How do we trust his plan? First, we have to release our expectations. I've talked a little bit about what the Jews' expectations were, but in particular, when we look at even at the time of Jesus, the Jews were expecting for Jesus to bring in the kingdom, right? Even after his resurrection, the disciples said, Is it now? Are you going to bring in the kingdom now? Now? Now, Lord? Now? And he says, basically, no. Not now. But that's what they expected. They expected him to, to, to rebuild Jerusalem, to set them free from the oppression. This is the expectation. Verses 25 through 27 tell us what God's plan was. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks which is after the 7 and the 62, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, that is the, the evil rulers, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even the, to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Not good news, right? Verse 27, And he, this is now, I believe, Messiah, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. The cutting off of sacrifice and grain offering. The book of Joel, one of the significant... Uh, um, prophecies of judgment upon God's people is that all of the grain and all of the, the wine is removed so that they don't even have the elements to offer a sacrifice to God. 
which is why he says that maybe God will leave enough for a sacrifice later in the book. This recognition that there'll be a time in which the sacrifices will be cut off. And to a Jew, that means a complete loss of my entire religious identity, right? Can you imagine if there was a point in God's discipline in which he no longer allowed us to meet together for worship? He could do it, couldn't he? Do you, can, you, can you recognize how troubling, we've seen a little bit of that with, with worship being in any way, any way disrupted through COVID. We're up in arms, how dare you? But what if it's God's plan? What if he's bringing that? What if that's what he's trying to accomplish? Are we willing to follow after God's plan? The Jews were faced with this reality and how hard this would be. The difficulty of it. In 25 through 27, we see that, that Jerusalem and the temple are going to be rebuilt, that the Messiah is going to then come, but then cut, be cut off, that the Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed, there'll be war and desolation, there'll be no sacrifices, there'll be destruction. All of that's going to come upon them. When we think about what do we expect? What do we expect God's plan to be? We have expectations, right? We have people who write books about what God's going to do in the next 25 years, right? We've had many, many people over the years who've said Jesus is coming back on this day. Guess what? All wrong. But he's coming back. I don't know when. That's why I don't spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out, well, what's the 70 weeks of years and how's it working here and over here and what, what are we in this one? Because Jesus said that isn't for us to know. And that's not the point of what Daniel's writing about. He just says he uses those terms to say that it's kind of vague. We don't know exactly, but he's talking about specific things that are going to happen. And we look at what we expect and the things that we expect. We expect personal peace and prosperity, right? We do. We expect everything to work well for us. We expect health, so that when we don't have health, we're deeply distressed. We expect freedom. Freedom to do what we want, whenever we want. You know, if that's God's plan, He is an abject failure in accomplishing His plan. If that's what he's trying to do, if you've traveled around this world and you see God's people who are not in personal peace, who are not in prosperity, who are facing incredible difficulties in their health, and who have no freedoms whatsoever, you find if that's what God has planned, he's failed. We live in a land where we're able to experience much of that and we begin to think that it's our God-given right without understanding that maybe God has been merciful to us and has granted it, but it is not necessarily his plan for all of his people in all ages. And it may not always be his plan for us. How would we deal if God doesn't meet our expectations? I have to release those expectations, don't I? If I am going to trust his plan, I have to hold my expectations with an open hand and say, God, you can take them when you will. I'd love for this to take place. I rejoice in the blessings we receive, but I will not hold it tightly to where it will keep me from accepting His plan. And then I can see God's good plan. Verse 27, I want you to note. And He will make a firm covenant with the many. A firm covenant. Not a transient covenant. Not a temporal covenant. But a firm and solid covenant. With whom? Many. Not with just a few. Not with a select group. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. To be specific, he's talking about the mystery that was been given to him as an apostle. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Up till this point when Daniel is writing, the gospel had been found in Israel and later just only in Judah because Israel was no more and Judah was in captivity. And God is saying, I have a bigger vision, Daniel. It's to make a firm covenant with the many. 
to go beyond the few, but to actually bring the Gentiles in to be joint heirs. So that one day, the worship in heaven will include these words. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Well, we live our lives seeking a plan that involves our personal peace and prosperity. God is pursuing a plan of global salvation. Can we see God's good plan? That His plan is something bigger than what we see. And He is determined to accomplish it. We live in a time where there's a a, a lack of trust all around us, right? And we see it in our own lives. The people that we don't trust. We don't trust politicians, right? Just broad brush. Doesn't make any difference. None of them. We don't trust any of them, ever, except the one I like. But I don't trust them, right? And, 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 then, and then we just, we don't trust them. We don't trust science, right? Well, we trust the scientists that say what we want to hear, but we don't trust science, right? We, we, we find ourselves not trusting that. We don't trust our community leaders. We're convinced that they've got some nefarious uh, objectives before them. We don't even trust the church. One of the things I face, we don't trust our pastors. We don't trust religious leaders, We are in a foreign land, are we not? And trust is not something that that we give. However, we can trust Messiah. Amen? I I can't, uh, I didn't write it in my notes, but I can't get on without uh, quoting Robin's dad, uh, Carol, who said all the time, you've heard it, God is faithful and he can be trusted. Messiah is faithful and he can be trusted. We can trust him in prayer. We can trust his works, and we can trust his plan. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Lord Jesus, Messiah, thank you. We think about these words that were spoken some 2,500 years ago and realize that as we look closer in the next few weeks, we see the history lived out, and you see you faithful to the words which you spoke even then. And Father, we want to say, with your one disciple, we do believe, Lord. But it's hard to believe. Will you help our unbelief? Will you help us trust you more, Messiah, Lord Jesus Christ? And by our trust, Messiah, would you reach this world around us with the gospel of your salvation for your glory? Amen.